Samuel begins in the time of the judges. And looking through that lens specifically adds significant weight to the first three chapters that we look at tonight. Because the book of Judges ends with tragedy throughout all of Israel. We see rape, abuse, gruesome murder, civil war, forced marriages. The last verse of the book says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the moment that Samuel, the book of Samuel, begins. It's a dark and quiet time in the history of Israel. But as we'll see tonight on its opening pages, God is certainly at work. Let's pray and we'll dive into the text. Lord, thank you so much just for who you are, for the the ability to be able to gather here as women to open your word and to look at it. Lord, I know that each of these women have walked in from a full day, um, a full half of the week. I pray that just in the next hour and a half, you would um, calm our hearts, quiet our minds, and help us to focus on you. Use your spirit and your word um, to speak to us, to show us, to reveal us more of who you are, and, and help us Help us to be changed and transformed by that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. If Samuel opens with a genealogy, a list of names. Did you know any of them? Probably not. But that's okay, because Elkanah was, by all accounts, an average Israelite. He was of the tribe of Levi, which is the tribe of priests. But um, his family was not the clan that was the ruling priestly family in the tabernacle at this time. Verse 2 goes on and says, He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. First off, this is a great example of where the Bible is being descriptive, not prescriptive. The author might not have included a qualifying statement of, hey, having two wives isn't a good idea, but we know from other stories in scripture, and God saying that marriage will be between one man and one woman, that having more than one wife was not God-prescribed. Though not a God-prescribed solution, the culture's answer to a barren wife was to take another to continue the father's family line. This is the answer that Elkanah seemed to have chosen for his situation. The first wife, Hannah, had no children. The second, Penina, does. But despite this choice that Elkanah makes, the Lord still graciously works through this man's family. We're not given a glimpse of Hannah's day-to-day struggle with her barrenness at home in Ramah. However, we are shown um, a specific yearly interaction between her husband and his other wife. We're going to read verses 3 through 8. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. 
But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So first, we, in that passage, we see that Elkanah was a faithful Israelite, which was not the norm in Israel as a whole. They were in a spiritual drought. We'll see more of that unpacked as we go tonight. Yearly, Elkanah would take his family and go up to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice. On your map this week, you saw that Shiloh was centrally located amidst Israel's entire territory. And though not a whole lot is explicitly spelled out for us, most scholars believe that the tabernacle <clears throat> was placed here, possibly along with some semi-permanent additions after moving full-time into the promised land, as the text sometimes refers to it as a temple. The placement makes sense. Uh, knowing where the tabernacle was placed during the 40 years of wilderness wandering right in the middle of the 12 tribes. This yearly sacrifice that Elkanah observes could have been in keeping with mandated festivals like the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles where families would remember that Israel remember Israel's wilderness wandering by recreating booths to live in outside for a week or this yearly sacrifice that Elkanah took could have simply been a private time that he chose to set aside for his family. Either way, we're told Elkanah kept this time of worship faithfully. We're briefly introduced to Eli and his sons in verse 3. You need to know that Samuel is a book full of contrast. When the author includes um, something like that that kind of interrupts, it is often to show a contrast. And the author is including this reference to them here purposefully. As you've seen this week, those three men were unfaithful, to say the least. And we'll come back to them more in chapter 2. Because Elkanah receives portions back from this sacrifice that he um, gives to the Lord, we can narrow the type of offering down to a thanksgiving, peace, or free will offering described in Leviticus 7. The mill would have been a joyous celebration of renewed and restored fellowship with God. And this is the time the second wife chooses to provoke Hannah and prod at her lack of children. A time when Hannah should be able to thank the Lord for what he has given her. Penina reminds her of what he's withheld. One commentator described the scene. He wanted us to imagine Penina with all her children. The text says all her sons and daughters hustling and bustling around with their portions of food on their plates, all while Hannah sits alone with double food on her plate. What was meant to be a joyous celebration of God where Elkanah also demonstrated his deep love for Hannah. Hannah is only reminded of what she doesn't have. She's reminded that this Lord that they've just worshipped in sacrifice has closed her womb. Hannah cries and does not eat. She arises after this miserable dinner, and where does she go? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. 
And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. While the text tells us Panina's provoking went on at this exact time, year after year, the author repeats that twice. It wants us to feel that. Year after year, Panina did this. We are only given a glimpse at this one specific response of Hannah's. And while I was studying, I couldn't help but wonder what Hannah had done in years past. I was talking to my brother-in-law this weekend Uh, just about how people respond to lack and loss so differently. Even the same individual can uh, handle struggles differently at different times. Some run to the Lord and some run from him. In this particular instance, Panina's irritating leads Hannah to run to the Lord's presence with her distress and tears. She asks the Lord to look at her affliction, to remember and not forget her, and to grant her a son. She adds a permanent Nazarite vow. We see Nazarite vows described in Numbers 6. It was usually a predetermined time frame for a man or a woman to make a special vow and to separate him or herself for the Lord. They would abstain from drinking wine, eating grapes, cutting their hair. The person for the allotted time chosen would be set apart exclusively to the Lord. Hannah doesn't give a time frame, so this would be a lifelong, permanent commitment for her child. She desires a child, but more than that, she desires the child to be used by the Lord. Verses 12 through 16. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Eli the priest had been sitting and watching Hannah, and as Hannah is praying silently, Eli assumes she is drunk and firmly rebukes her. And I think that this tells us two things. One, Eli is not used to seeing or experiencing prayer to the Lord beyond what ritual prayers he's watched or participated in at the tabernacle. And two, it's quite possible at this time in Israel's history that the sanctuary was often filled with drunkards, and he assumes that she's just another one. Hannah hadn't been drinking. No, she was praying. She was pouring her heart out before the Lord, and she asks Eli to not regard her as a worthless woman. Some of your Bible translations may have said wicked. I want you to put a pin in that phrase for later. It seems Eli quickly realizes he's made a mistake and speaks a blessing over her, a blessing the Lord will fulfill despite the one who speaks it. Verses 17 through 20. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. 
And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The Lord remembered Hannah. Hannah's language in her original prayer back in verse 11 shows us that she that language of using of God seeing her affliction and not forgetting her shows that she knew this covenant keeping faithful God of Israel just as he saw the affliction and hopelessness of his people in Egypt just as he saw the affliction of his people often brought on by themselves in this present time of the judges he remembers his people The filling of the wombs of barren women is something God often did to show his life-giving power and to preserve and deliver his people at different times in the Old Testament. He filled the womb of elderly Sarah to continue the line from his chosen and called out Abraham. After 20 barren years, he filled the womb of Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, with twins, one whose name would be changed to Israel the father of the 12 tribes. After years of that Israel's baby wars, one of his wife's, Rachel's womb, is opened to Joseph, who delivers his entire family from famine. In the book of Judges, we see an unnamed barren woman told by an angel of the Lord she will have a son to deliver God's people from their enemy, the Philistines. You know him as Samson. And ultimately, We see Jesus, the hope of our salvation, miraculously come as a baby in the womb of Mary. Now, as an aside, I know in this room alone, there are many stories that I don't know um, that struggle with reading a story like this or similar to it. And though we only get one snapshot of Hannah's response to her yearly reminder of her lacking, and her closure seems to come easily and quickly, that might leave you confused and disoriented to see God miraculously work again and again. You may not be experiencing the lack of a child either, but a lack that feels just as weighty and hard, and you wonder if the Lord has somehow forgotten you. I wish I could adequately explain why he chooses not to answer your desperate prayers. Hannah is a beautiful example for us of where our lacking of any kind should drive us right into the presence of the Lord. He can be trusted with our tears, our grief, our anxiety, and despair. He hears, sees, and knows the affliction of his people. I can't tie those questions that arise in your heart, up neatly with a bow here. I truly wish I could, but what I am confident of, what I am sure of, is the truth that God shared with Paul in 2 Corinthians, where he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes the affliction is only temporary. Sometimes it's a short time of barrenness, of lacking, of weakness. And God chooses to show his power with resolution, giving what was asked in faith.
Sometimes his power is shown in the heart of the one that continually struggles with the weakness, the lack, the affliction, never seeing resolution in the way she would desire, but by faith remembering she is not forgotten and that his grace is truly enough. Verses 21 through 28. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring, bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they, then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. A year has passed since Samuel has been born, and it is time to return to the tabernacle. Hannah doesn't go, but tells Elkanah as soon as Samuel's weaned, she'll return and leave Samuel to live there. Weaning typically occurred around three years of age, and that is when Hannah takes Samuel, a bull. Um, you may have noticed your footnote that said some of the ancient texts say three bulls uh, instead of a three-year-old bull, somewhere around 25 pounds of flour and a skin of wine. This was an extravagant offering, even with one bull, and shows the gratefulness of Hannah and Elkanah to the Lord. Hannah joyously shares and tells of the Lord's faithfulness to the man who blessed her after accusing her of being drunk in the tabernacle. And there is wordplay going on in these last verses that we don't pick up on in the English. The name Samuel in Hebrew sounds a lot like the Hebrew word meaning to ask. Okay? So Samuel in Hebrew, I was going to try to pronounce it, but it was not, it was just going to be butchered. So just know, Samuel sounded like the word that meant to ask. Del Ralph Davis, one of the commentators we're reading, gave a rough English translation that shows us a little more of what Hannah is saying. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him. And I also have given back what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he lives, he is one that is asked for Yahweh. So what Hannah has asked for, she has been granted. And she returns what was asked to the one she asked. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I think if you got to do your homework and spent a lot of time in these verses, you know that there was something more going on in the heart and the mind of Hannah than only receiving a much-desired son. Let's read her prayer. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. 
My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So you'll hear that section of scripture referred to as both a song and a prayer. That's because it was written as a poem, and so it could, it would have been sung. I hope you all have made plans to memorize this section of scripture. I'm in the boat learning with you. I haven't quite gotten, quite gotten started, so it's not too late to make a plan. If you want to make a plan with me, we can do that uh, after. It'll be worth the work and not just for this study. In this prayer, in this poem, in this song, Hannah highlights attributes and characteristics of God throughout. She shares he's worthy of praise. He is the salvation giver. He is holy and unlike any other. He is strong, constant, and consistent. He's a God of knowledge. He's the judge of the ends of the earth. She tells of the things the Lord has done in Israel's history and what he will do. He weighs humanity's actions. He kills and brings to life. He makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He has set the world on its pillars. He guards the feet of his faithful ones, and he cuts off the wicked. He breaks his enemies, and he thunders against them. And God shows us our, and Hannah shows us our God accomplishes his purposes in upside-down ways compared to that of the world. He hushes the arrogant. He breaks the bows of the mighty. He gives the weak strength. He fills those who are hungry. He takes away from those who were full. He gives children to the barren and to the one who has many children. He makes unhappy. He raises the needy from the dust. He sets them with princes. And he doesn't allow those who are mighty in the world's eyes to prevail against his people. Hannah in her song, looks beyond her own individual life and sees the hand of God in the lives of his people, Israel, even during the time of the judges. And we will see these attributes of God, these actions of God, and his upside-down ways in tangible examples throughout this book. Each week during your discussion time, we're having you look at the narrative that you studied and share how you see Hannah's song played out. Out. And at the end of verse 10, she says, God will give strength 
to his king and exalts the horn of his anointed. This is the first time in scripture that the king of Israel is referred to as the Lord's anointed. And we'll see in coming weeks that the monarchy was not a total surprise to the nation. And we see from Hannah's prophecy that she has been shown discernment from the Lord at some point along her journey that this child that the Lord has given her will have something to do with finding a faithful leader and a faithful king for Israel in their desperate time of need. Because the leadership of Israel was a disgrace, (laughs) starting with the religious leaders, the priests, the ones meant to mediate between God and his people. We're going to see them in verses 11 through 17. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verse 12 tells us point blank that Hophni and Phinehas are worthless or wicked men. The author purposely introduced them back in chapter 1 amidst the description of worship and faithfulness of Elkanah's family. Here the author uses the same word for Eli's sons that Hannah used in her rebutting of Eli's accusations of her. They are the worthless and wicked in this story. They did not know the Lord. Priests. Priests. Those who are to be mediating between God and man, helping and teaching the people to obey the law of the Lord, leading them in worship of Yahweh. And they do not know him for themselves. And this lack of knowledge is their own choosing. They have the mental knowledge of who God is and what he requires. And they have chosen to, allow, to not allow those truths to be experienced in their own lives. They have chosen to harden their hearts. Do you feel the depths of the darkness God's people find themselves in? Those who are supposed to be teaching them who the Lord is and of the Lord's ways don't know him. Their first act of wickedness mentioned is the stealing from the sacrificial offerings during worship to God. In your homework this week, I had you read the context of that super funny verse in Leviticus 3, uh, Leviticus 3.16 of all fat is the Lord's, right? That's super funny when you read it by itself. It's not funny when you read it um, while studying this passage. God had graciously provided the priests food. There were certain portions of certain offerings within his law that they were supposed to take and have for themselves. That's how they ate. 
but he was also he was always clear that the fat of the animals was for him for his worship and when worshipers would call Hophni and Phineas out on their wrongdoing they would physically threaten the worshipers and still take what wasn't theirs the text says this sin was very great in the eyes of the Lord and I am certain that this is one of the Old Testament pictures that James had in mind when he wrote his epistle. And in it, he has a warning. It says, you have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter, in, in a day of sacrifice, in a day of what was to be worship to the Lord. Eli's sons are stealing from the worship of God and fattening themselves. Verses 18 through 21. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. The author interjects with an update on Samuel. And I asked you in your homework why you think this is so. He actually does it a few times in the section that we're looking at tonight. And I think it's to remind his readers, including us, that even in the dark, even when we only see the grave sin of those who are supposed to represent the Lord, even when all seems hopeless, the Lord is at work. In contrast to the sons of Eli, the son of Hannah is ministering with a new priestly garment covered with a robe that his mother supplies as he physically grows and spiritually grows year after year. Verses 22 through 25, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Eli hears of his son's sexual immorality with the women who served at the tabernacle. He surprisingly confronts them, and rightfully so, but they do not heed his warning. We see at the end of verse 25 that it's the Lord's will to put him, put them to death. That may have made you uncomfortable when you first read it this week. It sounds like the Lord prevented them from hearing just because he wanted to kill them. But I'd argue that the Lord simply allowed for them to have what their actions repeatedly asked for. For the wages of sin is death. Their sin was great. They hardened their hearts. They rejected to hear of the gravity of their sinful actions, and they refused to know the Lord. They willfully chose death. The narrative moves on. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. 
And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you'll look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priests place that I may eat a morsel of bread. One more Samuel interruption to keep us from despair is given in verse 26. And in each of the last three statements about Samuel, the meaning of the Hebrew word used to describe him means to grow, mature, and become great. The narrator uses a word with that same root to describe the sin of Hophni and Phinehas in chapter 2, verse 17. One of the commentators pointed out both Samuel and the sons of Eli are great. Samuel is becoming a great man of God, while Hophni and Phinehas are becoming great sinners. An anonymous man of God arrives to speak judgment to Eli and his house, and the prophetic judgment speech follows a familiar pattern. It has an introduction, it has the accusations, and then it has an announcement of judgment. If you did the Hosea study for us you, or with us, you know that uh, that pattern was repeated often. Eli's sin is called out, specifically that of scorning the Lord's sacrifice by fattening themselves and honoring his sons above God. So we see that though Eli tried to warn Hophni and Phinehas for their sexual immorality and they refused to listen, he didn't call out the sin that he himself was benefiting from, the taking away of the choicest meat of the offerings. He also didn't remove them from their place, honoring his own household and name above God's household and name. And the man of God says Eli's house will be cut off. And the sign that was given for this judgment, uh, the sign that says that all of these things are going to come to pass is that his sons will be killed on the same day. We will see initial fruition to this prophecy next week. We will see continued, prophet, or continued fulfillment of this prophecy in week six. 
and ultimately its final fulfillment after Solomon becomes king. But that's a little ahead of myself. Let's look at chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. We're shown something else about the state of Israel here in verse 1. The word of the Lord was rare. There were no frequent visions. If the word is rare and those who are to teach and guide the people look like Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, it is not an exaggeration to say that Israel finds themselves in a spiritual famine. Verses 2 through 9, at that time Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. This passage shows us a few things. We know by the statement, uh, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, that this is early morning, right before dawn. And we see Eli's eyesight's not good. And Samuel probably often tends and cares for him. This is probably not an unusual thing for, uh, for Samuel to be called by Eli during the night. We see Samuel is a willing servant as he patiently comes to Eli three times as he hears a call. We also see Eli is not quick to perceive the actions and speaking of the Lord. It takes all three times for the priest himself to understand what is going on. He is not anticipating the word of the Lord. He is not expectant of any visions. The Lord is patient, calls Samuel a fourth time, to which Samuel responds as instructed by Eli. I don't have this written down, so this is kind of dangerous. But Eli knew what to say. But he, he doesn't reflect that in his own actions with his sons or with himself. He knows what the right thing to do is. And he doesn't do it. Okay. The Lord tells Samuel he's about to do a thing in Israel that will cause everyone's ears to tingle. And this may sound like it's describing some good news about to take place. But in this context, ear tingling would have been about great judgment. And the Lord reveals to Samuel that judgment is coming to the house of Eli because Eli knew of his sin, his son's blasphemy of God, and he refused to restrain them. And he says their sin will not be atoned for. 15 through 18 goes on and says Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? 
Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel goes back to bed for a little while, gets up to perform his morning tasks, and the text tells us that he was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Eli calls him and puts him under a curse right off the bat if he doesn't tell him everything. I think that this is prideful on Eli's part of just wanting to know, wanting to hear from the Lord. And Samuel wisely responds and hides nothing from him. Samuel was probably afraid because this is more than likely the first time he's hearing of these matters. We didn't see Eli sharing his visit from the anonymous man of God with anyone. And at this time, Samuel is still a young boy. These matters are weighty and heavy for a young man. But for Eli, it's the second time to hear these words. And it is confirmation that the Lord is serious. I find his reply to be a sorrowful resignation, a giving up. He knows he's at fault, and he still doesn't attempt to change his course. This chapter closes... And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Samuel continues to grow. The Lord confirms him as a prophet by always making sure that what Samuel speaks on God's behalf comes to pass. All of Israel sees Samuel as the established prophet, and the Lord reveals himself to Samuel by his word. Samuel now knows the Lord. The first three chapters of 1 Samuel have a lot going on. We find Israel in a state of spiritual drought and darkness during the time of the judges. The word of the Lord is rare. There are no frequent visions. The Lord seems silent. We see the religious leaders of the time acting for selfish gain, elevating themselves above the worship of God. Yet, we're introduced to a relatively unknown man from the priestly line with a barren wife named Hannah. They are faithful in this dark time of Israel's history. And God provides them a son, but not just a son for their own having, a son set apart to the Lord for his whole life under the Nazarite vow, a son that will serve as God's mouthpiece, a prophet that will speak the very word of God to his people and call them to repentance, a son named Samuel that will prepare the way for Israel's first king and Israel's true king. And these first three chapters also point to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. There we find Israel also in a state of spiritual drought and darkness. The word of the Lord is rare. The Lord has been silent for 400 years. 
The religious leaders of the time act only for selfish gain, elevating their traditions over the commands and laws and true worship of God. We're then introduced to a relatively unknown, faithful priest. His wife, named Elizabeth, is barren. God provides them a son in his wife's old age. This, too, is not just a son for their own having. This son will be set apart to the Lord for his whole life under the Nazarite vow. This son will serve as God's mouthpiece, a prophet that speaks to God's people and calls them to repentance. A son named John that will prepare the way for Israel's last and true king. As Samuel's mother, Hannah, prophesied, the Lord will give strength to his king and will exalt his anointed. In coming weeks, we will see she's speaking of Saul for a little while. She's speaking of David for a little while. And yes, she's speaking of Christ. It's been a dark and quiet time in Israel. Light is beginning to break on the horizon. Samuel, the forerunner, is here, and the king is coming. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Thank you for examples like Hannah. Lord, that desire to be faithful to you, even in times of struggle, a desire for all the things given to her to be yours. Lord, we thank you for warnings, for, for examples of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and ways not to be, to be quicker to heed warnings from you, gracious warnings from you. Lord, we thank you for Samuel. We thank you for the prophets that you give us, that you've given us um, by your word, that we get to see, that we get to know uh, your word because of them, that the word of the Lord has now come to us. And Lord, we thank you ultimately for the king, that all of these kings that we will discuss over the coming weeks, the king that they all point to, God, the hope of our salvation. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he came even in a dark and quiet time. Lord, as we shift to discussion groups, Lord, I pray that the time spent in the study um, would just be fruitful, um, would help and edify one another in these discussion times. And God, that as we just get this study off the ground, that we would just only continue to want to want to know you more and want to spend time in your word more. Help us to love you, help us to know you, and help us to obey you more. In Jesus' name, amen.